Have you ever known someone who was hopeless? And I don't mean by hopeless that they were despairing in hopelessness. I mean someone, as you looked at their life and the way they were living and the things they were doing, you didn't see any way they would ever change, any way things could ever turn around. They were hopeless as far as anything changing in their life was considered. You just can't imagine they can improve beyond what it currently is. Now, the reasons we could feel someone is hopeless are numerous. We could feel someone is hopeless because of the family they come from. And no one in their family has ever maybe amounted to anything. Maybe we could feel they're hopeless because of how bitter they are. Have you ever known somebody that was just, I mean, all bitterness all the time. And you think, man, there's just no way they're ever going to be anything but just a bitter, angry person. Or maybe we could feel they're hopeless because of an addiction to drugs. And we just think, man, they're not ever going to get off of that. Their lives are never going to change. Or maybe they're hopeless. We feel they're hopeless because of alcoholism. And there just doesn't seem to be any way they're going to break the cycle of, of drunkenness in their life. Or maybe we would say they're hopeless because of their involvement in some sort of sexual immorality. And it's just not ever going to change for them. They're never going to come out of that and give their lives to Christ. Maybe they're hopeless just because of the general immorality in their lives. They're just so given to all kinds of immorality. You, You can't imagine a path of holiness and righteousness being in their future ever. Maybe you feel they're hopeless because they belong to some other religion. And they're as deeply devoted to their religion as as you are to yours. And there's just no way they could come out of that. Or maybe you feel they're hopeless because they don't believe in any God at all. And gosh, how could someone turn around if they don't believe in Jesus? Maybe you feel they're hopeless because of how deeply involved they are with the LGBTQ community. And there's just, I mean, that just seems at times almost to be a religion all its own. No way they would be brought out. Of that, you name it, the number of reasons someone we could consider someone to maybe be hopeless is as numerous as the stars in the sky. But chances are we all know people who fall into one of these or some other kind of categories. And deep in our heart, maybe even in places we don't want to admit, we think they're hopeless. We've put them into a category of people. That either can't be saved or never will be saved. Them being born again and becoming a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus is hopeless so far as we can see or imagine. Even if we pray for them to be saved and give their lives to Christ, it's always with an air of, but you know, God, I know that really won't happen. Again, we probably wouldn't say that out loud, but... In the dark places of our hearts that we don't admit to others, that's kind of how we feel. Today's message is going to challenge the idea of any person anywhere being hopeless so long, so far as Christ is concerned. So open your Bible, if you haven't already, Mark 5. We're going to start reading in verse 1. That should be on page 764. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first 20 verses. They came to the other side of the sea, into the region of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately 
a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Because he had been often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains, cutting himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had already been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the region. Now, there was a large herd of pigs feeding nearby on a mountain. And the demons begged him, saying, send us into the pigs that we may enter them. Then Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and the countryside. The people came to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demon-possessed. Sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. And that very man who previously had the legion... And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described it to them. How it had happened to the demon-possessed man and about all the pigs. And they began to beg him to leave their region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging him also that he might accompany him. But Jesus did not let him, but said to him, Go to your people, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. title of the message this morning is Hope for the Hopeless. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love you today. Uh, You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you, Lord, for this passage and what it teaches us. Father, you show us through this passage the great power of Jesus to deliver and to save anyone. Lord, that's an encouraging thought because chances are we all have people in our minds we desperately want to see saved, but deep down in dark places we don't talk about, we've basically resigned ourselves to the fact that they won't be. They can't change. Nothing will ever be any different for them. And Lord, we confess that as unbelief. And we ask you to use this passage today to stir our faith. Stir our confidence in Jesus and and make it, Lord, so we have more confidence in Jesus' power to deliver and save than we do on Satan's power to deceive or on the lost person's ability to to stay in darkness more more than the appeal of darkness, Lord. Father, let this passage sink deep into our hearts and just do its work in our lives today. Father, maybe there is someone here today and and they feel they themselves are hopeless. They feel they themselves cannot change, that there's no way out of the life they're currently living. Stir their heart to see Jesus. Stir their heart to see Jesus with his hand outstretched saying, come to me. Lay your burdens down and you'll find rest for your souls. Let them see Jesus 
calling them to come and be free. And they would find out that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Make me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Nothing more, nothing less. Have your way in all of our hearts today. We ask in the mighty, beautiful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Direct may be seated. So after days of teaching and preaching and healing, Jesus takes his disciples from Acts 4 or from Mark 4, goes to the other side of the lake. As they land, they are immediately met by a demonized man. The passage goes to great lengths to make sure we understand the man has an unclean spirit. There are legions of demons within him. The demons within the man made him so wild, no one could tame him. They couldn't shackle him. No one was strong enough to hold him. He lived in the mountains. I'm sure a place where people tried to avoid as much as they could. But even if they avoided it, I doubt they could dismiss his howling and screaming among the tombs and in the mountains at night. And the guy was just this wild beast of a man until he met Jesus. The man we see in verses 3 through 5 is vastly different than the man in verses 15 through 20 who wants to, to go with Jesus and be his disciple. The first man was demonized. He was naked. He was violent. He was unable to be bound and perpetually miserable living among the tombs. The guy at the end was free from the demons. He was clothed. He was in his right mind, sitting with Jesus, wanting to serve Jesus. The guy we meet at first was hopeless so far as his community was concerned. They had tried to restrain him, but they couldn't. They had tried to tame him, but they couldn't. Chances are they had tried to help him, but they couldn't. (laughs) Nothing they had tried, nothing they had done had made a difference in his life. He seems to be the perfect picture of a hopeless person who cannot be helped, cannot be delivered, and cannot be saved. Yet this hopeless man in verses 3 through 5, he is the exact same person who is clothed and in his right mind and determined to be a disciple of Jesus. Because when he met Jesus... He was delivered, he was helped, and he was saved by Jesus. And so the key truth this brings to mind is there are no helpless people. There are only people without Jesus. Right? There are no helpless people. There are only people without Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is, is from this passage, I want to give us three, three truths about Jesus And helping people. And then I want to give four take home application points. Now I know what you're thinking. That's like two sermons uh, and seven points. But I promise you, it's not as long as it seems. We're not going to be over 20 minutes on each point. uh, And so we'll be through by two o'clock easily. Now, first truth Jesus wants to save everyone. Jesus wants to save everyone. Now, as we read this passage, it should come to mind a question. Why did Jesus 
Go to this particular place at this particular time. Now, as you can see in the passage, we're not given a definite answer. But I believe as we look at the life of Jesus, I believe we have an answer given about this. One, we know Jesus intended for them to be here at this time. They were across the other side of the lake in chapter 4. It was Jesus' idea to get on the boat and go to the other side of the lake. So, so Jesus intentionally crossed the boat and intentionally landed in this place. So the question still is, why did Jesus intend to come here at this point and at this time? Well, if we think about Jesus' life, particularly in light of, say, John 4, 4, we see Jesus on a different trip. And as Jesus and the disciples are going along, He says to them, I I need to go through Samaria. And the question was, well, why did He need to go through Samaria? Because the Jews hate the Samaritans. And Jews would go all the way around Samaria in order to avoid it. But Jesus made them go straight through. And then they came into a town in Samaria. There was a particular well there. Jesus sat down and sent His disciples to go into the town. And as the disciples were gone, it just so happened a woman came up to get water. A woman who was ostracized by her community because of the lifestyle she had lived. She had lived a sexually immoral life. And as she came to get water, there just happened to be a man there who told her where she could find living water. The woman met Jesus, believed in Jesus. And went back to her town to become a powerful evangelist to her people. Jesus needed to go to Samaria so he could meet her and he could save her. The meeting of the woman at the well wasn't a random but fortuitous circumstance. It was a divine appointment orchestrated by Jesus to bring about the salvation of that nameless woman. I believe it is the exact same thing here. Random chance and circumstance did not bring Jesus to this shore at this time where this man just happened to be. Rather, Jesus knew at this shore, at this time, was a man in desperate need of deliverance and salvation that only he could provide. And so Jesus charted a course to get them there so he could meet this man, deliver this man, send him out to tell others About Jesus. Jesus wanted to meet him. Jesus wanted to deliver him. Jesus wanted to save him. Now the man is clearly in bad shape. Again, he has legions of demons. They are in such control of his life. He is unbelievably strong. He lives in misery. He lives among the dead. He cuts himself. He's violent. One of the other gospel accounts tells us people could not even pass by there because of how violent he was. We're not told how he got into the shape he got in. But I think given the the whole context of, of God's word, I would imagine he had made some bad decisions in his life. He had made some bad decisions and given himself into some deep spiritual kind of darkness and sin that had given demons a place in his life and opened him up to demonic influence. And and as happens, the demonic influence increased over time. The demonic influence and the continual bad decisions led to demonic oppression. 
And the demonic oppression mixed with bad decisions and, and nobody to help led to full-on demonization. And whatever had happened, and whatever he had done to make himself to get to this point, it, it is very likely his decisions had led here. It, it is very likely he is in the condition he is because of his poor, sinful decisions. He is likely here because it's his fault. And yet, Jesus still wanted to come here to where this man was. Jesus still wanted to help this man find deliverance and salvation. Jesus feels this way about everyone. Look, look at this. I love this. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And regard the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you. So the context here is of the second coming of Jesus. Why has Jesus not come back yet? Well, it's not because he's forgot about his promise. It's not because he's someone who's slow to, to keep his promises. The reason Jesus has not returned yet is an act of divine patience. It is an act of mercy and grace. Because his desire is not for anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. His desire is for everyone to be saved. So Jesus is not waiting to come back because he's not coming back. He's not waiting to come back because he doesn't care. He's waiting to come back because he does care. And he cares about the lost. Every day Jesus waits to come back is a day of mercy. It's a day of grace. It's a day giving unbelievers an opportunity to hear about Jesus, believe in Jesus, and be saved by Jesus. But not just His return. Jesus could just as easily call an unbeliever or any of us into account. He could bring our lives to a close like that and bring us into judgment. So why? Why when some people live in, in great and desperate, wicked sin, why does Jesus not judge them and bring them into judgment? Because He is patient toward them. He wants them to come to repentance. He wants them to be saved. Every day that an unbeliever wakes up and has life and breath and all things, that is a gift of Almighty God. That is an expression of His grace and mercy and love and desire to deliver them and to save them. And you and I as disciples of Jesus, we, we have to know this. We have to believe this. As long as someone is alive and breathing, there is hope they can be saved because Jesus wants to save them. Jesus gave them this day for another opportunity to hear the gospel Believe the gospel and be saved through the Jesus of the gospel. Now, this isn't a part of the message, but just as an aside. He gave us as his disciples another day so we could go to those lost people and we could tell them about Jesus and they could hear the gospel. They could believe the gospel and they could be saved through the Jesus of the gospel. Our being alive is an act of mercy toward the lost as well. You and I, we do not know anyone who is so far gone. Jesus does not want to save them. There are no hopeless people. There are only people without Jesus. Not only does Jesus want to save everyone, Jesus has the power to save anyone. Now, 
Again, this guy is as hopeless a case as you can imagine. I mean, Jesus has met demonized people at this point. But this guy says he has legions of demons for their many. Now, if a legion is, is literally the same amount as a Roman legion, there's thousands of demons living in this guy. And given the fact that the herd of 2,000 pigs are possessed by the demons and then they rush down and are destroyed, it could be possible there are as many as 2,000 demons in this guy. That's, that's a bad case. You're in a bad way when 2,000 demons have absolute control of your life. When they have such control of your life, they can make you supernaturally strong. They make you constantly miserable. You cut yourself. You, you just are violent toward everyone and no one can restrain you. And yet Jesus is able to set this man free. Jesus is able to cast this demon out of him. And it wasn't a struggle. The picture in this passage is not Jesus and the demon had a, a death match. And thankfully, Jesus won. Good deal. It wasn't close. The demons begging in verse in verse seven and eight, it was only delaying the inevitable. Jesus determining it was time for those demons to come out, guaranteed those demons were going to come out. This man was going to be delivered. He was going to be in his right mind. He was going to be sent back to his family because Jesus has the power to deliver and to save anyone. His power has not diminished from this day to our day. Probably one of the greatest examples in my mind of the power of Jesus to save in God's word is the Apostle Paul, who said about himself, previously I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Blasphemer. Paul rejected Jesus as the Messiah, so he did everything he could to oppose and blaspheme the name of Jesus. In Paul's mind, Jesus was a fraud. And the language he used when he spoke about Jesus reflected this. But Paul not only blasphemed Jesus, Paul persecuted the church. Paul was so angry at the idea of people believing Jesus was the Messiah, he sought to eliminate the name of Jesus from the earth. By destroying the people who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. But he didn't persecute them by calling them bad names. He, he didn't persecute them by saying, shut up. No, you shut up. He persecuted them by going all over the world. Finding Jews who are professing the name of Jesus. Beating them. Imprisoning them. Having them stoned to death if they would not renounce Christ. <clears throat> this is what he did. All over. This is what he was doing when Jesus found him. Right? So Paul would have been our enemy, looking for an opportunity to imprison us, beat us, kill us, if we did not renounce the name of Jesus. And he was a violent aggressor. So this means not only did he treat others badly, which we've talked about, he hurted people, but it also means he enjoyed hurting people. Right? For Paul... Persecuting and hurting disciples of Jesus wasn't a necessary evil. It wasn't just something he had to do 
because he was so zealous for the Lord. He enjoyed beating them. He enjoyed imprisoning them. He enjoyed watching them be stoned to death. This is the kind of person the Apostle Paul was before Jesus saved him. That's pretty powerful, right? I mean, if Paul lived in our day, prior to coming to know Jesus, he would have been on a terrorist watch list. He would be the kind of person that would be FBI's number one most wanted because of the way he beat and imprisoned and enjoyed the hurt that he endured, he inflicted upon others. And yet that violent, persecuting blasphemer was shown mercy, was delivered from all of those things, and became a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus. What Jesus did for the demonized man in our passage, what Jesus did for the Apostle Paul, He can do for anyone Anywhere. You and I, we do not know anyone. We do not know of anyone who is beyond the redemption of Jesus. We do not know anyone. We do not know of anyone who is so far gone. Jesus does not have the power to save them. There are no hopeless people. There are only people without Jesus. And then thirdly. Jesus has a purpose for those he saved. This man has legions of demons, but he's been cast out. They've been cast out. He's clothed and in his right mind. Who knows how long it's been since he's seen his family? Who knows how long it's been since he's been home? But he wants to go with Jesus. I think there's probably a couple of reasons for this. One, you would just feel pretty awesome toward a guy who delivered you from all of this misery. Second, Can you imagine how much of an outcast this man would be in his community? I mean, he literally lived naked in the cemetery. And when people went up there, he was violent toward them. He was bleeding because he cut himself with stones. He howled all night. Can you imagine walking through your hometown and people looking at you and knowing, oh, you're the the naked dude up on the hill. That would be humiliating, right? How would you get over that kind of humiliation? So I think there's a part of, yes, he wants to go with the one who's saved him and delivered him, but it's best just to leave and and to go start a new life somewhere else. But Jesus does something unusual. And as far as I know, this is one of the only times Jesus does this. He tells the man, no. No, you, you can't go with me. You have to stay. And not only do you stay, you you stay here. And you go back to your, you go home and report to your people what the Lord has done for you. Jesus wants the guy to stay and tell others about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And I think the reason for this is because of the testimony this guy would be. Right? Right? There's there's nobody going to say, oh, you're faking your story. Your story's too. It's out there. Right. Come on. You were possessed by legions of demons and you lived naked in a graveyard. I don't believe that ever happened to anybody everywhere, anywhere. 
And so when he would tell them, I was possessed by legions of demons and I lived naked in a cemetery, they'd be like, oh, gosh, you're that guy, huh? Wow. Who, who, why, why are you right then? What happened? I, I heard nobody could fix you. And then he could tell them about good things Jesus had done. And, and one, uh, part of what I like about this is, well, two things. One, he wasn't to go back and argue the finer points of the law with them, was he? Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, how He has had mercy on you. Right? Just go back and tell people. I, you know that story of the demon-possessed man that was naked? and the, It was me. Jesus came along and saved me. He's awesome. You should believe in Jesus. Secondly, the man did it. He went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And, surprise of surprises, everyone was Amazed. Jesus saved him and he had a purpose for him. Despite whatever he had done before that led him to be demon possessed, despite whatever he had done as a demonized man, Jesus saved him, Jesus delivered him, and Jesus had a purpose for him. And Jesus has not changed. God's word tells us we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But notice the last. We are his workmanship. It's all about Jesus and what he's done. Created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Salvation is always a matter of what Jesus has done for us, not a matter of what we do for him. But we are saved to serve. We are created in Christ Jesus. We're saved. So we can do the good works God has prepared for us to do. Now, again, this passage was written by the same Paul, who at one point in his life was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Jesus took a self-righteous blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and turned him to a faithful and effective minister of the gospel. Jesus took a demonized man, set him free, and turned him into an evangelist that led others to Christ. Jesus had a purpose for Paul. Jesus had a purpose for the demonized man. And Jesus has a purpose for each person he delivers and saves today. Everybody we know, no matter what they're doing, where they are, what their life is like, Jesus can not only save them, Jesus can then work in them and through them and for them to accomplish His will in the world. That is His desire. There are no hopeless people. There are only people without Jesus. Now, as I think about these truths about Jesus, there were four application points kept coming to my mind. What we need to do. Because most of this, these are, this is just passive. This is just truth. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one who wants to save. Jesus is the one who has the power to save. Jesus is the one who has a purpose for those he saved. But what do we do with these powerful truths? Well, one, we need to open our minds. The first thing we must do, since there are no hopeless people, only people without Jesus, is open our minds to believe God's word when it says, the law came so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If there is any thought in our minds about someone being beyond the reach of Jesus, we must repent 
of this demonic stronghold in our minds and cry out for God to renew our minds until we believe the accuracy of His Word and the power of His Son. We must open our minds to the fact Jesus is really all of these things. He really can do all of those things. It must not be a wavering thought in our mind, no matter who someone is or what they're doing or how they're living. Our minds must say, yes, but Jesus can make a difference. They're not hopeless. They're just without Jesus at the moment. Once we open our minds, we must then open our eyes. And after we open our eyes, we need to look around. Jesus said, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields, for they are white to harvest. There are people all around us in desperate need of Jesus. And and you all know I am a big believer in going to far off countries to share the gospel with people who are in desperate need of Jesus. The reality is... We don't have to go to far off countries to find people who are in desperate need of Jesus. As every bit as desperate as this guy was. Chances are we don't even have to go outside of our sphere of influence. We all have friends who are desperately lost and need Jesus. We all have associates, people that we're around at times who are lost and desperately need Jesus. We have neighbors in our community who are desperately lost and in need of Jesus. Right now, at this moment, if we were to make a list, (coughs) we could all make a list of multiple people we know, we already have contact with, who are as desperately lost as this man is, and in desperately in need of Jesus as this man is. And they may seem hopeless, (coughs) but they aren't. They just need Jesus. We must open our eyes to see the harvest around us. But we also have to open our eyes to realize what happens to them if they aren't harvested. People who live lost and separated from Jesus and die lost and separated from Jesus, they die and they go to hell for all of eternity. Now, none of us like to think about people we know and love as dying and going to hell. And the more we care for them, (coughs) the closer they are to us the less we like to think about it. And so what we do is we begin making up excuses for them. Why they're the way they are. So we can convince ourselves they really aren't headed to hell when they are. We point out all the good things in their life. Gosh, they're awful kind. I think they're probably going to be okay. Gosh, they're they're faithful to their spouse. What a good dad. What a good mom they are. I think they're probably going to go to heaven when they die. But if they're good moms and good dads and good husbands and kind and generous. But they've rejected Jesus as Lord over their lives. They are not going to heaven when they die. They are going to go to hell. And so we don't actually help them. <clears throat> when we begin to say these things to ourselves, what we do is we ease our conscience while we let them slip to hell without putting up any sort of resistance against it. We must open our eyes to see the harvest around us. We must open our eyes to see the desperate need for Jesus. We must open our eyes to see the reality of people dying and going to hell. And we must open our ears. There are three broad categories we need to to hear. We we need to hear the cry of the people. We see in verse 5, this man constantly, night and day, was screaming 
among the tombs and in the mountains. He screamed day and night in misery and the oppression. His life was not okay. His life was not happy. The demons were making him miserable. They were oppressing him and destroying him. How many people around us are crying out in misery and oppression? It may not come out as just cries. I mean, I don't know that his necessarily came out just as screams of anguish. Maybe at times it came out as as anger. He was a violent person that people couldn't pass by there. I wonder if he shouted just anger at them. What's going on in the heart of a person who is just always so desperately angry? I mean, are, are they... Are they miserable? Does does their constant anger, they're just on the verge of explosion, does that hide a a misery in their heart that they need Jesus to, to deliver them from? Maybe we should hear that rather than just their anger. Or, or what about someone who just, their cries would come out as constant whining? I mean, there, there's a cloud behind every silver lining, right? I mean, it's just... Everything is woe me. Everything is bad. Everything is terrible. Oh my gracious. What if that's more than just say a personality trait? What if that whining hides a heart of misery? A heart that Jesus can set free and free them from the misery. What if we heard what was really going on in there rather than just being irritated by the whining? What if the cries come out as vulgarity? And the vulgarity is just hiding a deep misery. I mean, again, you you have to wonder. The Bible tells us that what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what's in our heart. So what does it say about a person whose speech is constantly profane and, and vulgar and just nasty? Doesn't that likely hide a, a heart that is in misery? And what if we heard the misery rather than just being offended by the vulgarity? And, and this one may sound strange, but I think it's a possibility. What, what if their cries come out as constant humor? But the humor hides a deep misery. You know, we, we tend to think that people who are always cracking jokes are, are really happy people. But I think the suicide of Robin Williams shows that's probably not always the case, right? What if... Someone just refuses to take anything seriously and always makes a joke out of everything, not because they're just a jovial person, but because they are deeply, desperately miserable. And what if we trained ourselves to hear, hear the cries in that humor? Do we have ears to hear the cries of the people around us? We also need to hear the cry from heaven. Isaiah 6, 8, after... Jesus calls, works in Isaiah's life and cleanses him from his sin. He says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Listen, that cry from heaven hasn't stopped. So long as there are people who are lost around us and to the ends of the earth, the cry from heaven still rings out, who, who will go? Who will take the gospel to the people of Guymon? Who will take the gospel to the people of Hooker and Goodwill and Texoma? Who will go to the ends of the earth and tell them about Jesus? Who will go? Do we have ears to hear the cry of Jesus? And so we can say, here I am, send me. I'll go where you want me to go and I'll say what you want me to say. If we opened our ears to hear the cry of heaven and then 
One more. Hear the cry of hell. The rich man dies and he goes to hell. And in hell he cries out in anguish for just a drop of water to to cool his tongue. But it's too late. There's no mercy given. And so he cries out for Lazarus to be sent to his family to tell them about the horrors of hell. I believe that story is a real story. I don't think it's a parable. I think it's a legitimate story. That rich man is still crying out in hell today, but not just that rich man. People from our community who have died and gone to hell are crying out for someone to go to their family members, go to their children, go to their brothers, go to their sisters, go to their wives, go to their parents, go to them and and tell them about Jesus so they don't come to that awful place of torment. Do we have the ears to hear the cries of hell crying out for someone to go? We must open our ears and then finally we must open our mouths. Jesus told the man to go and tell people what good things the Lord had done for him. Again, he wasn't necessarily to argue the finer points of the law. He was just to tell people what God had done in him. You and I are told we must go and tell Others as well. We must open our mouths and tell people about Jesus. We often try to minimize this by saying, well, I live a Christian life and people can see it. I witness through my life. But here's the reality. No one will see how we live. No matter how good a Christian life we live, no one will see our lives and say, I need Jesus. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. The very best we can hope for with a life, lifestyle evangelism, is we live a life so different from the unbelieving world around us. They call us aside and they say, why do you, why are you like, why are you the way you are? Why do you talk the way you talk? Why do you do do what you do? But guess what we have to do at that point? Open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. And one of the easiest ways for us to do this is simply do what Jesus told this guy to do. Tell other people what Jesus has done for us. If you're a born-again disciple of Jesus, you should have some sort of a testimony about the ways Jesus has worked in your life. And a way to to work through this, to think about it, because I kind of think we ought to to have it on our mind, maybe work through it. We think about it in three phases. Our life before we met Jesus. What was going on in our life before we came to Christ? How were we living? What was going on? Then, how we came to know Jesus. What were the events that led us to a place where we heard the gospel, we believed the gospel, and we were saved by Jesus? And then our life with Jesus. How has coming to Jesus made a difference in our lives? Now, again, if you're a born-again disciple of Jesus, you should be able to tell that story in as short as five minutes and as long as forever. I mean, we could all talk about ourselves all the time. But we should all be able to give... That story about our lives, if nothing else. And we can think, though, but how powerful could that really be? Look at Mark 7. Flip over to Mark 7, verse 31. Now, remember, the man went to Decapolis and everybody was amazed. And when Jesus left, they, they begged him to leave. Verse 31, Jesus 
leaves the region of Tyre, comes to Sidon through the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. So he's back in the same area now. And it's been a period of time. And the people who asked him to leave before, they're bringing him, those who were deaf, who had difficulty speaking, they begged him to lay his hands on them. Then Jesus took him from the crowd. There was a crowd. And he, he healed the man. Crowds gathered there. Now what, why, what made the difference? I mean, why were these people who in chapter 5 were begging him to leave, why were they crowding him and begging him to do something? Now what made the difference? The testimony of a man who lived naked in the, in the, in the tombs and who said, man, this is what I was. This is how I came to meet Jesus. This is what he's done for me. This, this is powerful. This is who he is. We could all do that. Again, if you're a born-again disciple of Jesus, you don't necessarily have to argue the finer points of Scripture and doctrine. Can you tell about your life before Jesus? Can you tell about the circumstances that brought you to Jesus? Can you then explain what Jesus has done for you and is doing in you now? People can argue with your doctrine, but they can't argue with your life experience, the way Jesus has shaped you and changed you and helped you. And so you just tell that, and it is powerful to give our testimonies. There are no hopeless people. There are simply people without Jesus. Jesus wants to save everyone. Jesus has the power to save anyone. And Jesus has a purpose for every person he saved. So for us who are disciples of Jesus, what we need to do with this is we need to begin to pray for our God to open our minds to see the greatness of his grace Open our eyes to see the needs, the desperate needs for Jesus all around us. To open our ears to hear the cries, the cries of the people, the cry from heaven, the cries from hell. And we need to pray for him to give us the strength to open our mouths and tell people about Jesus. But if you're here today and you're one who feels helpless about your situation, about your life, about what's going on, I want you to know. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Jesus did for those we talked about today, He can do for you right now in this moment. And if you want Jesus to deliver you, and if you want Jesus to save you, you must come to Him. You come to Him with repentance. You come to Him with faith and a willingness to follow Him wherever He leads. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. You have to understand your sin is wrong. And you're wrong about your sin being okay, but God is right that it's evil, it's wicked, and it's separating you from Him. And you, you change your mind about that, and as you're changing your mind, you're, you're turning to God from your sin. And you're doing this because you believe in Jesus. You believe what He did on the cross is the only hope you have. You're, you realize you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't turn over a new leaf and make it better. You can't do anything about your condition. The only person who can deliver you, the only person who can save you is Jesus. And when this life is over and you end here and you walk into heaven, you will say, I'm here because of what Jesus has done and not because of anything I have done. That's faith. 
And without that, we do not have faith. If our hope is in anything we have done or will do to earn our salvation, we are not saved. We do not have faith. We must abandon all hope in ourselves and embrace the cross and the cross alone as our hope for salvation. And there must be a desire to go with Jesus to do His will, whatever that would be. And if you have never personally because it is a personal decision. Each one of us has to make it on our own. If you have never personally repented, you have never personally believed, and you have never personally committed to following Jesus, this is where everything must start today. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to have a time of response. The altars are open if you want to come forward, whether you're coming forward to pray. Maybe you know someone that's hopeless, and you want to come forward and pray for opportunities for you to reach out to them or somebody else to be sent to them and for them to come to Jesus. Maybe you want to pray for yourself that God would open your mind, open your eyes, open your ears and open your mouth. Maybe you want to pray and surrender your life to Jesus and let Him do for you what He has done for others in this Word. The altars are open. I'll pray and you come. Our Father, we love you today. We thank you for Jesus, what He has done and what He can do. Father, I don't know what's going on in anyone's heart in here today. I know all of us, Lord, feel burdened by different people we know and love. So, Father, enlarge, open our minds that we would really see the bigness of your grace and we would understand the power of Jesus to save. They're not beyond redemption. They're just in a really bad place right now. Father, give us courage to open our mouths, speak about Jesus when the opportunity arises. Open our eyes to see those opportunities. Lord, as we go out this week, let us hear. Let us hear what's behind what people are saying. Lord, for those that we encounter that are miserable, let us hear their misery, Lord. Let it break our hearts and let us be compassionate for them in Jesus' name. Father, if there's any here today that, man, they just feel hopeless. And let them see the greatness and the power of Jesus is available for them. Jesus can deliver them. Jesus can save them. Not only can He, but He will. So have your way in all of our hearts. Do what you know needs to be done. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.